Hey y'all, Rick Houston here, and I want to tell you about my new show, the Moonshine and Motorsports Racing Podcast. I've partnered up with the state of North Carolina Department of Natural and Cultural Resources to help uncover the history behind moonshining mountain boys, professional wheelmen, and the backwoods and city lights of the Tar Heel State. In the first episode, I sat down with Winston Kelly at the NASCAR Hall of Fame for a little behind-the-scenes gossip about Junior Johnson's engineering skills. He's got two things in his hand, pipe wrench and channel lock pliers, and they weren't new. They had been been around the block a time or two. What's the first deal they built, I bet? No, no, you know, I think they were, the the pliers had been red before, but paint had worn off. And in the second episode, I talked to a professional hillbilly, a.k.a. Dr. Daniel Pierce of UNC Asheville, to find out the real history of moonshiners and their battles with the revenuers. He wrote about one of his experience of trying to chase down this uh, this bootlegger and this this souped up car, and he he complained that the government gave him these piece of crap, cheapo cars, and that, that were really no match. But he thought he was doing pretty good, and then the guy just hits it and just takes off and practically disappears. But then the guy makes a bootleg turn uh, and comes back towards him. And as he said, it was a game of chicken, and I was the chicken. And so he ran off the road. And actually, he was the guy who who caught Junior Johnson at his daddy's steal when Junior got tangled up in a a barbed wire fence. So check out the Moonshine and Motorsports Racing Podcast, available on YouTube, DailyDownForce.com, and all of your favorite podcasting platforms. And be sure to check out my regular show on NASCAR history, the Scene Vault Podcast. Hey there, NASCAR fans. Have you got your copy of the latest edition of NASCAR Pole Position Print Magazine? If not, there's no better time than now to subscribe at PolePositionMag.com. NASCAR Pole Position is the only print magazine covering NASCAR. Officially licensed by NASCAR, NASCAR Pole Position Magazine is published throughout the NASCAR season, and each edition is an instant collector's item backed with great feature stories and photography. The magazine is even mailed to you in a poly bag for those who love to collect NASCAR memorabilia. At PolePositionMag.com, you can even find past issues available to purchase. Get your subscription to NASCAR Pole Position and get great NASCAR content delivered straight to your mailbox throughout the season. Learn more at PolePositionMag.com. That's PolePositionMag.com. Hello, my name is Rick Houston, and welcome to the Scene Vault Podcast, your source for all things NASCAR history. Presented by QWare. Maintain excellence. Jeff Gordon had expressed interest in driving that 33 when Harry retired. My hands are shaking. I was literally, I was so yeah. nervous about that yeah. car being, because I knew if it wasn't good, I was done. Dale kind of goes off and gets on his high horse, and I said, time out, boys, I'm having a team meeting. Basically told him that you just drive the car, I'll handle the team. People didn't know that. Even during all of that rivalry period, Ray and I talked every Monday morning. The day NASCAR and all of us associated in any way with NASCAR forget its past, that's the day we don't have any future. Hello, I'm Steve Wade. And my name is Rick Houston. And Steve, it is a beautiful day outside, is it not? <laughs> Rick, why do you say that? <laughs> Steve, did you notice anything different 
about our intro this week. Uh, yes, I did, and I liked it. We have, in the immortal words of Tim Dalen from Days of Thunder, we have ourselves a sponsor. <laughs> <laughs> and my friend, Eric Quinn, who I have known from our Days in the Bush series together since the year 2000, he has been a huge, huge help to us even before the whole sponsorship thing came right. about yeah. because he actually designed the scenevault.com website. And it's a beautiful website. And one of these days, it's going to come to fruition where we fill that thing out with a complete run of Grand National Wednesday Cup NASCAR scenes. That's a battle for a different day. Eric also designed our logo. And he also cleaned up the Grand National Scene logo for use on the commemorative issue at Darlington. So, yeah, Eric has been a huge help. Oh, he's been right there for us. And then he has stepped up to the plate. He's now the chief technology officer of the CNS companies in Syracuse, New York, and also the general manager of QWare. And they are promoting this product. And one of the ways that they chose to do so is to support our podcast through a title sponsorship. And I'm going to talk to Eric in the second segment. And it's not just an ad segment. I talked to him about his background in the sport. And he does have a deep background. Now, Steve, let me tell you this. First okay. thing off the bat, Eric broke into the sport professionally as a trainer for motor racing outreach and his very first race solo was the year 2000 the may bush series weekend at new hampshire huh. now let that one sit next to uh, you for a yeah. second eric and i talk about that we talk about his background in the sport and how long he was a scene subscriber and then of course he does talk about qware and i truly do appreciate that however that's not the only reason that the sky is so bright today. How about Kyle Busch at oh, Los... come on. <laughs> oh, yeah, it's a beautiful day because, well, there's no other way to put it. You got smoked in not, our playoff contest. Not a good day for Kyle, <laughs> and he let us know about it, too. <laughs> so, yeah, it's a great day. Now, in our first segment this week, Steve, we have a very revealing interview with Andy Petrie. To say the least. He told me some things that I did not know, had never heard. This week, we're going to be talking about his relationship with Dale Earnhardt, yeah. with Richard Childress, and with the team after he came on board after moving over from Harry Gant's team. And in the beginning, it wasn't exactly easy going no, for it Andy. it was not. That was very interesting. And then he talked about his relationship with Ray Evernaham and some of the things that they were doing, exchanging information. Unbelievable. I did not know any of this. And then in our second segment, Eric Quinn is going to be visiting with us and talking about his background in the sport and also QWare, our new presenting sponsorship. Oh, and in our conclusion, we're going to figure out some way, somehow, if you can possibly dig yourself out of a hole <laughs> at Richmond. <laughs> 
<laughs> got a ways to go yet. Don't count me out. Okay. All right. Yeah. It is a marathon. It's not a sprint. So just keep telling yourself that. <laughs> okay. It's a marathon. It's not a sprint. And also, have you come up with any ideas for what our bet should be? I have not put my mind to it, to be honest with you, because I figured some of our listeners out there are going to come up with something truly special. Okay. All right. So you're going to rely on the listeners. Yes, I am. Okay. All right. Well, we'll get some help from them. And Steve, this week we have new Patreon support from Nate Dunham, Justin Hall, and Bob Roush. Bob Roush. 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 I wonder if he's any relation to, uh, what's what's the guy's name in NASCAR? NASCAR? Uh, Jack. Jack. Okay. Yeah, I've heard of him. (laughs) (laughs) Now you can join in. $5 a month or more, you will receive one of these Grand National Scene commemorative issues that we did with Darlington, plus at least one classic issue of Winston Cup Scene, $5 a month or more. That's it. And you can do that at patreon.com slash the scene vault podcast or if you'd rather do just a one-time show of support that address would be paypal.me slash the scene vault podcast. Steve, follow Brian Kelb on Instagram and Twitter at Speedway Screens and check out his inventory at speedwaytsj.etsy.com. If you're a race fan, you've got to see this inventory. I believe His inventory continues to grow. It continues to amaze. He adds T-shirts basically every day, and he's actually built a pretty decent little business for himself. I agree with that. So, again, follow Brian Kelb on Instagram and Twitter at Speedway Screens, and also check out the inventory at speedwaytsj.etsy.com. You will not be disappointed. So, 1992 was still a pretty good season. Maybe not quite as good as 1991 had been. At some point that year, you got word that Richard Childress was interested in you taking over as Dale Earnhardt's crew chief. How did you and he first make contact? Well, it was, you know, like we said, we'd had pretty good, really good success in 91. Then 92 was, it really slipped a bit, you know. Yeah. We did win two races, and we had been, you know, kind of in the hunt for the championship. Well, you were in mathematical Mathematical. Yeah. We yeah, weren't really yeah. in the hunt, but but we were kind of within shouting distance of the championship. Yeah. But, man, I really – I was so hungry to win a championship. I really, yeah. really wanted that, you know. And Harry was 52 years old by this time, and that's not to say that he wasn't – he could probably still do it. Yeah. I, saw, I saw him <laughs> recently, but – Yeah, yeah. Um, I was, was just wondering how it was going to happen, right? Jeff Gordon had, had expressed interest in driving that 33 when Harry retired. Had he really? Yeah, yep. he was. Um, that's another whole story. But I kind of was involved in Jeff's first stock car race. Oh extent, yeah, yeah. Where mm-hmm. him and Ray Everham, I've kind of put them together. Right. He so he was doing that and and really wanted to get into Cup. That was at that time one of the better cars. So yeah. He, he wanted to drive it, but I couldn't convince Leo to take the chance on a kid like that. Could I, you not? No, I could not. <laughs> uh, and I still I still let him know about it today. But. <laughs> But he didn't. He just wasn't ready to take a chance on a kid because he was unproven at that point. But, Man, how times have changed. Yep. So yeah. when he when Hen- Hendrick hired Jeff, I think. So there, there, you know, and Ray to go over there, and there's a handwriting on the wall for that. And then I knew this job was available, and I was still a little reluctant because I, 
Leo was like a father figure to me. That was like a family deal. So did you make and first contact? Did you no, actually? I, actually, they called me, but I, okay. they, I knew that they were interested. Yeah. And wanted me to call, but I never did reach out to him. I was kind of reluctant. But Richard calls me at home one night, wanting if I'd come meet him. And this was after the season. I think it was after the last race. And I said, yeah. I said, about, I'll, I can only come Sunday because we're working six days a week. And I said, I'll come down Sunday. Still during the off-season? Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And then um, – so I get in the car, drive down here to to uh, meet Richard on Sunday and pull in the parking lot. And there's two cars in the parking lot. So I go in – and Richard's office, a little round table, and right there sits Childers and Dale Earnhardt. Wow. And I was that impressed me. Now, that that's a welcoming was, committee. When he showed up Literally. For, that, for that meeting, yeah. meant a lot. Yeah. And so we, we discussed our goals and what we wanted to get out of all this, and they were just so similar that yeah. I knew it was – I had to do it. I knew it was my, my chance of a lifetime. If I wanted to win a championship, this was it. How much contact did you had with Dale before? Did None. you Did you know him? Um, you knew yeah, of him, yeah. you know obviously. Him yeah. Just an acquaintance in the garage. I didn't really know him, though, until then. So you take the deal. And you and I have talked about this before for my Dell versus Daytona book. But when you took the deal, and I believe you started November the 1st of 1992, going into the 93 season. The, was the, it that soon? I, thought, I was thinking it was later than that. Well, you know, don't let the facts get in the way of okay. a good story. <laughs> that's the way I'll it is in the book. I'll we'll, take your word Yeah, we'll, okay. that's the way it is in the book. We'll just leave it at that. <laughs> <laughs> okay, November 1st it is. Uh, uh, December 1st. Oh, December, yeah, okay. De- yeah, okay. November, now, December. I, yeah, the, the season right. wouldn't have been over yeah. by then. But yeah. December 1st, 1993, you start here at RCR. And, Andy, I can't imagine how difficult a position that must have been in because here you were, a new guy coming into a very well-established team that had had a ton (laughs) of success. I guess four championships at that time, 86, 87, 90, 91. And uh, that that must have been pretty tough. It was. I mean, I knew the – you know the pressure was going to be there. I was I was up for it. Like I said, I really wanted to win that championship. I knew Dale was the best. Yeah. It was everything was there. I knew that we could do it, but it was pressure. And I go in there without any people. I didn't bring any of my guys with me. Um, you know, just walk into this thing. Kurt Shelmer Dean had retired and walked out the out of the building there, but everything else he had built and everything was still yeah. there. Um, and they were a pretty tight knit group. Yeah, as you can remember. Yeah, and so. Um, I walk in the first day, and you can just kind of look around the shop, and it was a little different place than what I'm used to, and bigger, everything yeah. was nicer, and all these banners hanging on the wall. <laughs> They're still over there in the museum. Yeah. If you ever, you've been there, yeah, lately, yeah, you'll yeah, see them. Yeah. But, um, it's like walking into the Boston Garden or something. Now I'm the head coach of the Celtic. Okay. <laughs> you yeah. know, that's what it felt like. Yeah. yeah. Now I've got to go in here and figure out how to get the respect of these guys, and it took a while. I honestly, it, 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 was, it was rough at first. And it was hard to get the respect of the guy. Now, Richard, from what I understand, was pretty conservative when it came to the car. I think you made the <laughs> the analogy that if a quarter inch bolt would would <laughs> do, you know, a, a little bit better bolt, he'd would, want a half inch bolt. Yeah, yeah. He'd, he'd want a half inch bolt. And the two of you didn't exactly see eye to eye on things. You wanted to be out, I guess. I don't want to say on the ragged edge a little bit more, but you wanted to kind of push yeah, the envelope. A little I did, bit. and I, it was, I pushed him. A lot past his comfort zone. Uh, like I said, up to that point, they had been able to have real conservative equipment. As long as it stayed together, Earnhardt could figure out a way to get it to the front. Right. Um, but the sport was changing. It was getting to the point where 
you couldn't just show up with anything. You had to start pushing the envelope some, and they realized that. Um, and had, had their performance had fallen off the year before quite a bit. Yeah. So, he, so I mean, Richard knew that we were going to have to do some different things, but he didn't. He wasn't quite ready for some of it. <laughs> yeah. You know, and it was, and like I said, it was it was aggressive things that we were doing, but they weren't, you know, ridiculous. I mean, it was just pushing things a little past where he was comfortable. Okay. Um, and we went. I think the Daytona thing was we were. He always wanted to run the water temperature like one eighty. That yeah. was his number. Yeah. And I was yeah. like, no, no, we can't can't do that. And I said, we've got to have it hotter than that. We've got to run more tape on the grill. Just, yeah. You know, and he kept pushing back and pushing. I mean, for two weeks, you know, you're down in Daytona for two weeks, yeah. right? Yeah. Well, we end up winning the Bud Shootout or Bush, Bush Clash, won the qualifying race. And, you know, I'm trying to sneak a little more tape on it all the time. <laughs> <laughs> well, then when, so he, yeah. he kind of lets me get away with it for a little while yeah. on those. And then yeah. but when the 500 came around, he wanted that thing cool. <laughs> Okay. So, so we had, I mean, we, I don't even think we compromised much on it. I think he pretty much made me have a certain opening to make it run cool enough. Right. And um, we ended up losing the race to Dale Jarrett. And I remember in the garage, we were sitting there side by side, tearing the engines down, and look over at the 18, which Dale Jarrett had won in. Yeah. And it had about half of the grill opening we did. <laughs> And I looked at Richard. I said, right there's why we lost. <laughs> it was after that he started letting me run more tape on the grill. Now, how accepting was Dale of the changes that you wanted to make? He was – Dale was used to being – as far as the car and a lot of things like that, I think he was – you know, he thought I was going to bring a lot of different tricks and all that stuff, and he was all game for that. But he's that dominating personality that won't, he'd always been able to just kind of – push his will on on yeah. on what anybody yeah. on the team you know kurt shomardine just basically did everything told him and he, you know that wasn't my style and so so we, you pushed back a little oh yeah i pushed oh. back a lot as a matter of fact we didn't get along at all at first wow and it was probably because we were too much alike yeah you know yeah. pretty pretty hard-headed and and it, and it was it was going okay i mean like i said we finished second daytona i can't remember some of the other finishes but we hadn't won yet and richard he brings us into the to his office, which he still does. <laughs> in there yesterday. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> What'd you do? <laughs> but he brings he brings yeah. Dale and I in there and says, "Look, guys, we've got to get on the same page here. You yeah, know, you, we, we don't. I don't see the chemistry here. Yeah. We we need to see if we're going to win races." And, and Dale's like, "Yeah, all right." He says, I, "He says you guys need to bond a little bit." And you know, if you remember Dale, he goes, "Yep, all right, Richard. That's what we're going to do. We're going to bond. Me and Andy going to bond. It's going to be good." He's over, you know, shaking my hand or shoulder and say, "Yeah, we're gonna we're gonna bond. We're going to Darlington." So yeah. he said, "Tell you what," he said, "Me and Teresa are going out on uh, Saturday night for dinner. I want you to come with us, and you know, we're, we're gonna, gonna bond." bond. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so I leave the meeting, kind of just laughing yeah. and thinking, "Okay, yeah, we'll we'll give this a shot." <laughs> so we do that, and um, we and I, I'd use it as an opportunity to talk to him because I didn't get a lot of time at night during yeah. the weekends to, to really spend talking about the car. And so we're sitting there at the table, and I, I knew that there was going to be some challenges with the right front tire at Darlington because yeah. it was that kind of track, and the tire that we were running at the time was marginal. So I told him how we were going to go about practice, and it was probably going to involve failing that right front at some point because we wanted to figure out how much it would take. Just to see how far it yeah. would. Mm-hmm. Okay, yeah. And uh, he, didn't, uh, he didn't like that. And I said, the one thing about the tire, it would give you warning. And he says, all right, I'll take your word for it. So we go through this little exercise on Saturday practice. This is probably Friday night we went out to dinner. So Saturday practice, we do this whole thing. 
and make a lot of changes on the car and run real long runs every single one of them and end up winning we end up winning the race and I remember going into Victory Lane when looking at him when he was getting out of the car and I said that's how you bond right there <laughs> that was in what March yeah it was, it was March I think April? it was like the fifth race of the year okay still every car that you had run that year had been in the stable when you yeah, got yeah. here. They were current uh, Kirk mm-hmm. had basically yep. overseen construction and RC had overseen it. The first one that you actually built from the ground up was one that you were going to run at Sears Point and you changed pretty much everything from yeah, what you told me. Yeah, that was the first, you know, we hadn't had a chance, like I said, it came in December so there was not a lot of time to like build up the fleet. We basically just had to kind of use what we had. I, you know, there's a lot of things we changed along the way but we had to use the current cars uh, that were here and so I, I looked at the schedule and the calendar, and I said, okay, I want to build an all-new car by Sears Point. And we want, I was going to change every system, everything about the car was different. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it was nothing like anything they'd had in there. And so it was like, oh, it was like pushing a rope trying to get that done with all these people. that. And again, there was years. some pushback. Oh, yeah. tons and tons of pushback. Because it was all different. Everything was, There were so many things that were so much lighter uh, you know, from the from the cooling systems to the brakes to the I mean, every way the car was built was was just different. So we get it done. Like I said, I had to push and push and push along the way against yeah. a ton of resistance because yeah. what do we need to build a new road course? We got one here, just one it you know, two years ago, <laughs> you know, yeah. whatever. Yeah. And so that's what I was fighting. And so we didn't get to test or anything. We just load it in the hauler, we go out to California. <laughs> I remember <laughs> You know <laughs> how serious it was for my career. I yes. get out there, and it's, yeah. So we were taking a little while to get through tech, probably because I'm pushing a few things. I can't yeah. remember now. Yeah, but, yeah. So we we don't go on the track when everybody else does. We're a little bit late getting on the track, and so I finally go up on the hauler. Dale pulls out to go on the track, and Childress is up there clocking cars with his stopwatch. You know, this is kind of before we had all the monitors and whatnot, <laughs> and. uh I get up there and Dale goes by and I click my watch and he goes by and I'm watching him go up through the top, up part of the track and he comes down there and I click it to stop the watch and as I was getting ready to do it I look my hands are shaking. Wow! I was literally I was so yeah. nervous about that yeah. car being because I knew if it wasn't good I was done. I mean my career probably over if that car didn't run and I remember clicking the watch looking at it and going. I don't even remember what a good time is at Sears Point. We only go once a year. <laughs> I look yeah. at it, and I look up at Richard, and I think I'm almost in tears. I'm going, is that a good time? <laughs> he goes, yes. <laughs> You're off the hook, buddy. <laughs> oh, I was so nervous. We ended up sitting on the pole. Sitting on the yep. pole. Yep. So that, it all worked out, and you know, thank God it did because it could have gone either way. You finished sixth in that race at Sears Point, and then the next two races, you went at Charlotte and you went at Dover. How much of the pressure did that relieve to kind of get? Yeah, to kind of get that weight off your shoulders a little bit. It was a lot. I remember we tested for Charlotte. We had some issues within the team. Um, some mistakes were being made at the test, and Dale kind of goes off and gets you know gets on his high horse about some things and finally i said time out boys said, we're going to the gr- we're going to the truck we're having a team meeting you're gonna I, bond again this is a little <laughs> another little different bonding session. <laughs> danny lawrence was in part of that deal and he he swears that's that was a turning point because, really yeah because where was this at at charlotte at a test really and okay so yeah i basically told him to, you just drive the car i'll handle the team and i didn't, didn't want him involved in it you know basically set some ground rules and said this is the way it's gonna be 
this is you talking to to yep. Dale Earnhardt Dale and the team in there. It was all it was Holy a really heart to heart thing. Wow! But it changed. Now it was really this did. before or after Sears Point? This was after. It was the, after okay, Sears okay. Point. All right. But this this was basically the turning point that really put us on the path to win the championship. What was Dale's reaction? I think he it was uh, he wanted that. He was the kind of guy that would push you and push you as far as you would go. But if you push back, he respected you. I think he respected me for doing it. I think he, he I did gain a ton of that of respect from him from then on. And, what exactly uh, precipitated that? I mean, it was just some mistakes being made. I can't remember now. Yeah, somebody okay. left a hood pin out, or I can't remember. It was a, okay. A, one of the wrenches got left on the radiator top, which fell out on the track. It was just a couple of little yeah, stupid yeah, mistakes yeah, yeah. that we were making, but he was starting to lose his mind over it. And I said, just time out. That's not for you to worry about. <laughs> you know, you worry about driving. <laughs> Andy Petrie, you are the man. <laughs> you go on, you win the championship that year. What was it like as the season wound down? Because this is something that you had made this move to accomplish. Yep. It was so. Uh, how nervous were you as things wound down? I didn't realize how much pressure it would put on you to yeah. get in that position. You yeah. know, we like I said with Harry, we'd gotten within shouting distance, but we'd never really led the points or had that pressure on your shoulders. But we had that most of the year uh, in '93, and it was man, I'm telling you, coming down the stretch for me, it was really stressful. What made it better was that you know Earnhardt had been in it so many times. He was that's yeah. when I could lean on him. I knew that that. I had the guy that he could handle the pressure. All I had to do is just keep it together. <laughs> so, but it it came down to the end. It was I was worried about every little detail, and it uh, it worked out. But it was a lot of pressure. So after this Charlotte get together session, what was your relationship like with Dale after that? Was it one of respect, or was he maybe still a little standoffish? No, it was. It, it became much much closer. Did it? Yes. Okay. We, yeah. We we became good friends during that time. Um, Probably more in 94. Yeah. We win the championship in 93, and we enjoyed it together. And uh, We spent some time in New York. He had me up, to, you know, they had that presidential suite, and he had me yeah. come up early. So we spent some time there. But then in 94, we became pretty close friends and um, spent some time away from the track together, too. So I think that helped. So I guess we truly did bond after that. In 1994, you go to Daytona and get off to a really rough start when we lost Neil Bonnet. And, of course, Dale and Richard were both – pretty close to him especially close to him what was that like yeah that was oh man i remember that um you know i used neil quite a bit for testing dale didn't like to test yeah. anywhere but especially at the speedways he didn't he didn't like to sit in there holding throttle wide open while we did all these little you know detailed changes so neil was out of the sport at that point but he wanted to drive again and he just that didn't have the opportunity yet and so i just Call him up. Hey, you want to go test the car at Daytona? Yeah, heck yeah. So we used him a ton in those, you know, the last couple of years. And um, so then in 90, I guess it was 93. I can't remember. When was the last? Yeah, 93 at the Talladega race. We let him drive our backup car. Oh, yeah. Yeah. We let Neil drive it in the oh, race. Yeah. yeah. And um, end up wrecking it, flipping it down the front stretch. <laughs> that is one of my most vivid memories in this sport is I was on pit road when mm -hmm. that happened and I can remember seeing the red undercarriage yep. of that car go. Yeah. I remember know. it too. Oh but man. That was I something. talked uh, Childress into letting him because it, because Neil wanted to race so bad and yeah. I knew that. And so I told him, I told Neil, so I got a little plan here. I don't know if it'll work. Yeah. So I convinced Richard because we were going to build new speedway cars for the next year. And that was the last one. 
that we would let him drive our backup car. Now, if we needed it, he wouldn't be able to race it, right? So yeah. he'd have to give it up to Dale, but he ended up letting him do it. Wow. Yeah. Given everything that you'd been through the year before in the transition from Leo's to RCR, how much of a different feel did 1994 have? Did you feel more up to speed? Yeah. I as a leader super, here? Super confident, yeah, because okay. we – you know, I, like I said, I'd kind of gained the respect of the guys in the shop by this point. Uh, we'd made a few changes in the structure. It felt more like my team at that point okay. than, yeah. than it did coming in. Um, I'd hired a few different guys. So in our pit, we were working on our pit crew. And I, at that point, I was still changing tires. I was a front tire changer. And um, we were putting a lot of emphasis on that, a lot of practice sessions. And so we were, you know, things were going pretty good. I felt pretty, pretty good in it in 94. After Watkins Glen, Dale had a 27-point lead on Ernie Irvin in the point standings, and it was pretty much just the two of you. I think the third-place person was like 320-something back. And you go to Michigan, and Ernie gets pretty seriously hurt. What do you remember about that day? Yeah, it was really, really kind of a tough time for the sport because yeah. Ernie was gravely injured. I mean, we yeah. didn't think he was going to live through the night, honestly. And everybody's worried about that and it was it was a time when the sport was just so it really was dangerous i mean every you worried about these kind of things all the time and then here it happens to the one of the top guys in the sport and you know it was tough i mean they were a close competitor of ours but you know we still felt we felt the pain too of him getting hurt and not being able to go out there and compete against us right for it right andy you were the crew chief for dell earnhardt's seventh championship I mean, just to say that sounds cool. It is cool. <laughs> that's a, that's cool a big it. feather in yeah. your cap. What does that mean to you personally? Just the time I got to spend with Earnhardt and to be able to be part of his success was really special because if you don't hit your wagon to somebody like him, it doesn't matter. Crew Chiefs, the, you can have one of the best ones in the garage area, and if you don't have that guy yeah. driving the car, you're probably not going to get noticed. And uh, I was really lucky. I was lucky to be his crew chief in that period. And it was, uh, you know, I felt like it was the prime of his career. And, yeah. you know, just worked out really good for me. It's what kind of set a lot of things in motion for me for the rest of my career. Behind closed doors, <laughs> what was Dale's reaction to this Jeff Gordon punk? <laughs> coming along and, and starting to do really well in 1995. It, it kind of irritated him, you know. Jeff was the first guy to come along that, didn't have to really we would say earn it I mean, the way people felt like you earned it back then was you raced on these dirt tracks and you raced on in sportsman series and you went to these things for years and years before you ever got a chance to drive one of the cup cars yeah. uh, i mean harry gant for example do you know yeah. how old he was his rookie season 39 39 years old <laughs> they're, they're that's pretty good that i know that, that isn't is it? yeah yeah <laughs> and so uh, I think it kind of just irks those old guys like, you know, right. Earnhardt and that they, that this kid could just show up and just be in a good car and be that good. And um but he did respect it. He respected his ability. He did. It was it wasn't something that like behind closed doors he was always just jealous or anything oh, yeah, of, of yeah, Jeff. Yeah. He 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 looked at him as a tough competitor and respected his his talent to drive the car. Now did he ever make the connection that you had helped put, and I think so. He and Ray, <laughs> yeah, I think so. What a lot of people don't know, and I've said this recently too, but um, Ray and I were close friends. I'm, you know, like I said, helped Ray get into the sport, right? Um, 
and then when he did, I, kn- I knew how good he was. And yeah. so we, we shared a lot of things back then. As a matter of fact, we were really almost like teammates. People didn't know that. Even during the, all of that rivalry period, ni- all three years, 93, 94, 95, Ray and I talked every Monday morning. And he and we, I would do the post. No kidding. Post notes for my race of that weekend. Holy I would tell him everything cow! Everything we had in the car. He told me everything. Everything. Is, everything. We shared everything. Nobody knew that. Now Richard, I'm gonna have to get a lie detector. But Richard, <laughs> but I'll go talk to Ray. Go oh to wow. Ray. He'll, okay. He'll, wow. He'll back it up now. I think if Rick Hendrick and Richard Childress had known this, it probably fired both of us. Wow. We had to, we had radios channels. We had our own channel. We talked during the race. <laughs> 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 That's people. I don't, most people don't. I know did that. not know that. Yeah. That is incredible. Yeah. So you know, so Ray Ray was one of these guys that bring a lot of new ideas, a lot of fresh things, which I've always embraced. I've right. really, really like the technology and always pushing it to the next thing. And so he brought a lot of new things, and I was trying to learn everything I could from him. Well, I had all the experience. Yeah, he didn't. Okay. Have, so we were yeah. we were really good for each other. And so wow. you know, for ninety three, ninety four, ninety five, we were the only ones who won the championship, right? So we yeah. went in. 93 and 94, and Jeff wins it in 95. Wow. But most people don't realize. You have blown me away, Andy Patrick. (laughs) Yeah, that made it worth coming (laughs) down here just for that. Now, how did the dialogue get started about going back over to Leo's? Uh, It happened after we won the championship in 94, and we were testing, I think, preseason testing for 95. At Daytona, Leo Jackson, like I said, is just a dear, dear friend of mine, and I respect him so much. And he, he was ready to retire as an owner. And he, he had always had this vision that I would be the one that he would kind of pass the torch to. And, um, and I, when I left, it was one of those, it was very difficult for both of us because I didn't want to leave him, but I did want to, I had something I wanted to do. I want to win a championship. I wanted to go do this thing. And he understood, he didn't like it, but he understood. So yeah. in 95, I'm in the garage area and, you know, we've won the championship twice now, right? Yeah. He says, says, are you ready to do something different? (laughs) Well, I'm kind of enjoying this. Yeah, yeah. But he said he wanted to retire at the end of 95, and he wanted me to come back and and kind of take it over. And so we talked on and off that season, and he made it – he was going to make it possible for me to own that team, and that was unattainable for somebody in my position back then or even now. And it was a chance of a lifetime. Now, I wasn't ready to leave Earnhardt. I had the best job in racing. Yeah. I'm the crew chief for the best guy yeah. in the sport. And uh, we're right on the cusp of winning the, the eighth championship. We lost it by a few points to, to Gordon. Uh, but I really felt like we could have done it had we stayed together a couple more years. But here this you – know, it, t- it was difficult because if I don't do it now, I'll never get it. Um, and so I took a chance. I took a big chance to leave here and go do that. So you go back over there in 96, and you're kind of getting your feet wet, and I think you took the team over for good in 97. I took it over in 96. I think we closed on it in October maybe. It was, okay. it was later yeah. in the yeah. season in okay. 96. Yeah. But, um, because it took most of that year to get the deal done. There was a yeah. lot of ins and outs. First off, you got to have a sponsor. Right. <laughs> I had to convince Skull yeah. to, to yeah. come back, yeah. Yeah. and uh, we were able to do that. and put a lot of things in place by October. You took over late 96, and then it's 2001 before you won a race with Bobby Hamilton and Joe Nemechek. Was there ever a point where maybe you had second thoughts about this whole ownership deal, or were you satisfied? I would never know. I was never never had regrets doing it because yeah. I just I was motivated. I mean, I, I, like I said, I had the goal of being a championship crew chief and attained it. 
The yeah. next thing is I wanted to be a, a car owner, a winning car owner. So I was just focused on that. I you know, had Kenny Schrader driving in the beginning as a one-car team. Um, then we were able to grow it to a second team with Kenny Wallace. I think it was 98 maybe or was yeah. it 99. Uh, yeah. So shortly we were a two-car team. And, and so that, that kind of consumes you, you know. And it's, it's a lot of pressure, different kind of pressure, but – you know, we had up to about 100 employees at one time. Wow. Um, and it was going good. You know, everything yeah. was going pretty good, and it yeah. was going the right direction. But then the economy kind of turned. Uh, the sponsors that I had were uh, were good ones, and we had Oakwood Homes, Skull on the car uh, before that. We had Square D. Yeah. That was a sponsor for the 55 car. Things were okay. But then when they these companies decided to go different directions, and uh, Oakwood Homes at the time had some financial issues, Skull had – been regulated kind of out of the sport from a tobacco yeah. side. So, you know, it just kind of got to the point when, when Square D decided they didn't want to do it anymore. I, I mean, I didn't, yeah. I just didn't have the wherewithal to, or the depth to keep it yeah. going. You wound up doing a lot of TV stuff and now you're back at RCR. What's your role here? Well, Richard hired me as the vice president of competition, uh, basically to be over the competition side of the company. Um, you, you know, he, I think he respects my. My forward thinking, and yeah. he, he wanted to try to get some different, a little different atmosphere, different structure here. And I told him I was looking for another challenge again. And uh, so, yeah, I came back at the end of 17. I've been here since then. Cool. It's been a challenge. I'll, I'll tell you that. Awesome. But uh, awesome. it started out good. <laughs> <laughs> Steve, there were any number of things in this interview with Andy Petrie that were kind of mind-blowing. Right. But the first of those <laughs> was the fact that Jeff Gordon had expressed an interest in taking over the number 33 car when Harry Gant retired. And that's one thing. I, that's hard to believe, but I, I understand Jeff was anxious to get into the sport. Well, here's what's especially interesting <laughs> is the fact that Andy Petrie could not convince Leo Jackson <laughs> to hire him, but you have to kind of no. look at it from Leo's part because he had Harry Gant in the car. And when Harry Gant retired, he was what? 53, four years yeah, so old in that range. Well, Leo, Leo a 20 was year from, old kid. Yeah. Leo is from the old school. Oh yeah. yeah. He had had an established driver racing for him for several years. And enjoyed great success. Now, look at it, like you said, if we look at it from his viewpoint, why is he going to adopt some new tactic and hire somebody he doesn't know? He doesn't know a thing about his skills or anything after he's been dealing with Harry Gant for all these years. That's a tough, tough move to ask owner to make. I believe it's a tough thing to ask of Leo Jackson just to work with another driver. That would be difficult enough, but Harry had more experience than anybody on the sure. racetrack, with, you know, at the time. But then you're asking him to get a 20-year-old kid. Right. That's in the car. Point. You're talking about completely opposite ends of the spectrum. Now, obviously times have changed and a driver is getting old. 
a driver is getting long in the tooth by the time they're 25, 26, 27 <laughs> years old. They're retiring at 42 and less, <laughs> you know, or so, younger. You know, and Andy Petrie had been one of the ones who had made the connection between Jeff Gordon and Ray Evernham when Jeff made his first few Bush Series attempts in 1990. So they had kind of made the connection. I don't think anybody knew at that time where that connection would lead. And Steve, this was not the last time that Andy mentioned Jeff. And if the thought of Jeff Gordon driving the Skull Bandit car is mind blowing, <laughs> just wait till you hear what did happen. That was what truly kind of amazed me. So we'll get to that in just a second. When Kirk Shelmerdine was on the show, we kind of talked about the just terrible, terrible year that they had in 1992 with Dale Earnhardt and Richard Childress Racing. Kirk Shelmerdine wound up retiring. And Richard Childress needs a new crew chief, and in comes Andy Petrie. Very interesting situation. I'm kind of wondering if Andy wasn't a little bit nervous about this, because after all, he's been hired to replace a crew chief with a solid reputation, multiple victories, multiple championships, and he's stepping into a new role with that new team, and he's got some big shoes to fill. RCR had won championships in 1986 and 1987 and 1990 and 1991. So Richard Childress Racing had won four championships by this time. So they knew how to get to the top of the mountain. And in comes this new guy, Andy Petrie, and he had had some success. Right. But he'd never won a championship. And he comes in and he really wants to kind of turn things around and kind of go a different direction in right. terms of technology andy made the analogy it was kind of like pushing a rope and i believe that was a fairly good way of putting it certainly i think richard Childress wanted to go into a different direction in other words after the bad year of 1992 i think they won one race that year right and things had to change now there are several ways to make that change but one of the ways is to take a new leadership tack have some guy come in to be the crew chief who's got some new ideas, got some new strategies, and frankly is a new face for the team. And frankly, that could help them go in the different direction they wanted to do. Well, I think what Richard Childress wanted to do was plug a new person into Kirk Shelmerdine's slot and kind of continue doing business the way that they always had. And when Andy took the job, he came in and it's one thing to not see eye to eye with the team members. He didn't see eye to eye with Richard. Well, you, know, you just brought it in, had a new face, but kind of do the same old things. Yeah. Uh-uh. Andy yeah. came in there thinking just the other thing. <laughs> you know, yeah. you hired me, I'm going to do things my way because you're looking for a change, and I'm here to bring it to you if I can. And it started right off the bat because at Daytona, Richard Childress was very conservative with the car. And it seems kind of strange to say that anything regarding Dale Earnhardt was conservative yeah. when it came to the way that he drove. He certainly didn't drive conservative. But when it came to the car, I think the team was very cautious. And it kind of manifested itself at Daytona. Richard wanted to keep the water temperature at 180. And Andy wanted to put some more tape on the nose of the car, add more downforce. But when you tape off the grill of the car, that's going to cause the engine to run hotter. Yeah. And he was like, 
the water temps may get up to 220, 230. Again, I point to the fact that Andy, I think, was willing to do things differently. Now, here's why I think RC and the team were very cautious. A bad year in 1992 required some stability going into 1993. They didn't really want to take chances. They just wanted things to be as they were in terms of car preparation and see what else they could do from that point on. And he came right in, right in, and said that changes are going to be starting right now. (laughs) Because, again, I repeat myself, he had to be thinking, this is what you hired me to do. Well, I don't know that it was exactly a bull in the china shop type situation, but he was definitely wanting to do things differently. And I think on Richard Childress's part, I think that kind of went back to his days as an independent driver when he had to make his equipment last because the fact is he didn't have the money to keep buying new engine parts. So he had to make that engine last. So it had to run at 180. He's done things a certain way for years. Yes. Both Richard, I'm speaking of Richard as a driver and an owner. Okay, he's done things the same way most of those years and had the same kind of team leadership in Kirk for a lot of years. It's not the easiest thing to make such a strong adaptation very early, but that's what Andy was bringing. Imagine Andy Petrie going into the garage after the race. The 1993 Daytona 500 was very famous for the Dell and Dell show and Ned Jarrett's call right. on CBS. Right. But... Dell Earnhardt got passed for the lead with a lap or two to go, and Dell Jarrett had more downforce on the nose of his car. His nose was taped up a little bit more. Andy kind of went out on the limb in the garage, and the cars were sitting next to each other in inspection, and Andy pointed to the cars and said, that right there is what cost us the race. Now, that was pretty sporty. Right. Of him to do. I think that was pretty gutsy. But how else are you going to make a team adapt to your ways unless you show them exactly what the difference was and what the difference could have been? That's exactly what he was doing. And things did get to the point where Richard Childress kind of called a clear the air meeting. Some people might call it a come to Jesus meeting right. before Darlington. Right. And, and we it- talked about that Darlington race a couple of weeks ago leading into the Darlington weekend, Dell Earnhardt won the spring Darlington race that year, and it was Andy Petrie's first win. And so they had went out and they had bonded. Yeah. Quote unquote bonded. That was having that kind of meeting is not anything new. Certainly not with Richard Childress's team and any other successful team, especially with new individuals coming in and taking over a very critical job, just getting to know each other. And then if you have to do something like go out and have dinner and everybody, you know, come back and say, okay, we're now united. We're now going to do this. That's not anything new in NASCAR. Even after they won at Darlington, every car that they had run had already been in the shop when Andy got there. It had been constructed with Kirk Shelmerdine as the crew chief. Certainly Richard Childress had his fingerprints all over the cars, but... Andy Petrie, the first car that he built and oversaw construction of from the ground up, was going to run at Sears Point. And, of course, there's a lot of stuff that goes into a road course car that might not be on the ordinary chassis. And he basically changed everything. He's going to lightweight parts. He's doing this and the cooling system and all the different things that you can do to a road course car. He's putting himself on the line by doing that. 
to hear Andy Petrie talk about going on top of the transporter at Sears Point as Dale Earnhardt goes out to make his first lap, he said that he looked down at his hands as he was clocking the car, and his hands were literally shaking because he was so nervous. And he was actually to the point where if this doesn't work, I'm out of here. I'm gone. They're going to fire me. And that is a natural thing for him to think because he made all those changes to the car. This is his car. And if you think about it that way, it's do or die. Dale goes on to run a good time. He actually sat on the pole and he finished sixth. And then the next couple of races, he wins at Charlotte and Dover. And I think that Sears Point was a turning point. But then, Steve, he talked about a test session at Charlotte. Whatever happened, there were some minor little piddling mistakes that had been made by the crew. He talked about leaving a wrench somewhere and it fell off on the racetrack. Just little minor things that had happened. And evidently, Dale starts griping about him, and he started kind of cracking the whip and kind of fussing at the crew. and Which is a natural for any driver. Kind of putting the pressure on him. And Andy Petrie said that he kind of stopped it in its tracks and said, hey, we're going to go to the truck, and we're going to have a team meeting between Andy Petrie, Dale Earnhardt, and the rest of the crew. And in front of everybody, Steve, Andy Petrie tells Dale Earnhardt that he can drive the car. And that Andy Petrie will take care of the race team. First of all, can you imagine talking like that to <laughs> Dale Earnhardt oh, yeah. in front of other people? Yeah. Oh, well, Andy did the right thing because the most successful teams over the years have had a situation where there's unity between the driver and the crew chief. There's also something else. Let the crew chief do his job. I have seen, and you have seen, more than one time where the driver put his nose in the situation and not help the team whatsoever because one reason is the crewmen don't know who to listen to. Mm -hmm. That's the point. Yes. And so by Andy going in there and saying, hey, I am the crew chief, okay, what that did was unify his position with the team and put Dale to the side as maybe... You can drive the car and make suggestions, but I'm the leader, and that's the way it should be. Well, I think that probably got Andy Petrie a lot of respect from the crew because to have Dale Earnhardt fussing at you is probably not going to be a very comfortable position to be in. But for this new guy, this new crew chief to come in and tell Dale Earnhardt to, hey, you take care of the car, I'll take care of the crew, and if if they need fussing at, I'll take care of it. I'll handle it. And. Andy Petrie right there cemented his position with Richard Childress Racing. And he went on to win championships in 1993 and 94. And 94 94 was the record-tying championship for Dale Earnhardt, his seventh championship. So that was pretty big. But, Steve, when you're doing an interview – And a lot of times you're listening to what the person is saying, but you're also kind of looking at your notes and kind of thinking about what you're going to say next and Uh what you're going to ask next. I don't want to say you're not paying attention, but you're multitasking. Right. But when Andy Petrie started talking about the (laughs) relationship that he had with Ray Evernham and the fact that they talked every single Monday morning exchanging notes and telling each other exactly what they had run on their cars. We know about the rivalry that Dell Earnhardt and Jeff Gordon had. Right. Because Dell Earnhardt was everything that it meant to be old school. 
Jeff Gordon was everything that it meant to be new school. And on the racetrack, certainly they were big rivals. And their fan bases couldn't have been any more different. That's right. But to consider that Dell Earnhardt's crew chief and Jeff Gordon's crew chief were exchanging information, everything on Monday morning, you know, that, that was amazing. That Yes, that was amazing. And I'll tell you what, it was a stroke of genius because two heads are better than one. And if you get Ray Everham and Andy Petrie working together, look what you got. You got innovation and experience melting in one pot. And they can take from that. Both of them can take from that. I can't recall any other two crew chiefs doing the same thing. I mean, it just didn't happen. Well, certainly not on opposing teams. No, that's And my certainly point. not with two rivals. I mean, this, you know, you put it in baseball terms, and this is like the New York Yankees and the Boston Red Sox giving each other their signals. This yeah. was probably one of the most surprising again, revelations that I'd heard. Absolutely. But again, if you stop and think about it, it is a master stroke of genius because you got all this knowledge and innovation in one place that both crew chiefs can take advantage of. It's not just one man, not just one idea. It's two men and several ideas. It's got to work. And one other thing that he said they even had a private radio channel <laughs> where they could talk during races. I, I have never heard of that before. Ray was on the cutting edge of innovation. He was very good at that kind of thing. And Andy had all the experience in the world. So it was... It was the perfect combination. It was a perfect match if they had been teammates. That's right. <laughs> this is what made it so different. They were not teammates. As a matter of fact, their drivers were rivals, as you fully explained, and yet they were able to communicate with each other on a regular basis, and I think that did great things for both teams. Well, Andy actually made the comment that if Richard Childress had known what he was doing and if Rick Hendrick had known what Ray was doing – what the consequences might have been. First of all, do you think that the team owners knew? I find it hard to believe that the team owners did not know, especially when the two were communicating during race. Now, I know you have different channels and everything like that, but you can't keep a secret at the track. No one has been able to do that, to my knowledge, not for very long anyway. So I think both of the team owners probably had an idea of something was going on, but why mess with it if it was working? Okay, if it was if it proved positive for both teams, why not just say shrug your shoulders and say, "Okay, I'll go along with it." It's working, and that to me would be one reason why the team owners would not get involved so much and try to break this sort of thing up. Well, first of all, Eric. Thank you so much for being on the show, and obviously thank you so much for the support as a presenting sponsor for this podcast. It's something that we've been talking about for quite some time, but before we get to the actual sponsorship, I did want to talk to you about your background in the sport. You and I first met when you were actually working for Motor Racing Outreach. What was your role there? That is correct. Uh, I went to work with Motor Racing Outreach as an athletic trainer. Uh, at the time, from, from 1999 until 2007, Motor Racing Outreach had a sports medicine portion to them, and I worked with that group uh, from 2000 to 2005. Okay. So, yeah, we, we first met. Uh, I don't. You probably don't even remember meeting me, Rick. 
there's so many people in NASCAR. Yeah. But, uh, my first race was a- was April of 2000 uh, in uh, Talladega. Um, I had met with MRO, and they asked me if I would work the Bush standalone races uh, doing the sports medicine. I said, sure. And they said, why don't you come to Talladega? Uh, we'll show you what we do, and then you can be off on your own. So uh, I went to Talladega, uh, and then they said, okay, you've seen what we do. Your next race is going to be New Hampshire uh, Mother's Ooh. Day weekend in oh, 2000. Eric, and are so, you serious? Yeah. That wow. was my very first race. And on the first day, I uh, walked into the track with the chaplain, uh, Eddie Robinson, who I'm sure you remember. Eddie. Oh, yeah. I loved and Eddie. He started introducing me to people. Yeah. Yeah. He started introducing me to people. And one of the people, one of the first people he introduced me to was this writer from the scene, uh, Rick Houston. <laughs> so uh, probably you don't remember meeting me there. I remember meeting you. I remember walking and, and Eddie introduced me to you. Uh, but that was that was my first race weekend. Man, I don't even know what to say. That is truly mind-blowing that that was your first race wow wow yeah it, it was uh, kind of cool because uh when it happened when the when adam's accident happened um we were eddie robinson and i were eating lunch with, with adam's pr girl and she oh. we were sitting at the table at the little infield restaurant that was there in new hampshire and all of a sudden she stood up she said i gotta go adam just wrecked because uh, yeah. it was in practice yeah, yeah. next thing i know uh, Eddie says, I got to go. They're taking Adam to the hospital. And I, he goes, just care of anything that happens here. And I had no clue what I was doing. I didn't know anybody. Uh, I ended up, uh, the only other person I kind of knew at that point was Tad Geschechter. Oh, yeah, yeah. Tad and, so Tad and Phil had me uh, come sit in their hauler as things were kind of unfolding. And it was, uh, it was a very strange weekend. I also know that you actually played a role in helping introduce the Hans device into the sport. How did that take place? Well, the uh, the person who invented the Hans device, Bob Hubbard, he had been trying to connect with NASCAR uh, ever since uh, Adam Petty and Kenny Irwin and there were several other incidents that had happened, and, and he really hadn't had much luck. But uh, there was a group of folks, and still a group of folks at me, called the International Council of Motorsport Sciences. And my boss, uh, Bill Nelson, uh, with MRO, who uh, unfortunately just passed away a few weeks ago, uh, he he had gone and met with Bob Hubbard. And, and Bob came to the track in, in Daytona in 2001. In, in the 10 days leading up to the Daytona 500 in 2001, Bob spent a lot of time with us, um, teaching us about the Hans device, and then, of course, the events that unfolded during the Daytona 500 in 2001 uh, made for a very interesting (laughs) conversation. I got a call from Bob Hubbard, and he said, listen, I'm not going to be in Rockingham next week, and you're going to have a lot of people coming to you asking you about the Hans device, so if you could do me a favor and just tell everybody what you know about the Hans device and try to get them to fitted into the Hans device. So sure enough, the next week in Rockingham, we had a good number of folks showing up. Um, and uh, I was using different types of padding uh, for people like Terry Labonte uh, and different people who were trying to to get the Hans device be comfortable. Um, and so, yeah, that's, uh, I was uh, became good friends with Bob Hubbard, uh, John Melvin, who was one of the crash test experts and, and uh, really became uh, one of the champions for for safety within NASCAR, uh, because of my boss, Bill Nelson, um, we were doing the safety meetings. So um, when 
when NASCAR would do the safety meetings with the safety crews, the track safety crews, we would go in and, and teach the safety crews about the Hans device and how to, how it was connected and about uh, six and seven point harnesses versus the five point that people were used to before. So uh, there was a lot of stuff for a number of years uh, that I, I ended up doing uh, to help promote safety within NASCAR. So how did you transition from being an athletic trainer to <laughs> the chief technology officer of this big company in Syracuse, New York? Well, uh, that's an interesting story, kind of. For me, it's interesting. For other people, maybe not. But I had worked for the engineering firm um, before I went to work in NASCAR. So I had, I had gone to school and wanted to I wanted to be an architect. Uh, ended up working for an engineering firm. Walked into my office one day and said, I do not want to sit in front of a computer for the next 45, 46 years of my life. So I went back to school and got my degree in sports medicine. After I left NASCAR in 2000, uh, 2005, um, I started a, my own company here in upstate New York where I live just outside of Syracuse and I was working with a local racing series a dirt racing series here in New York and uh, at one of their bigger races <laughs> I ran into a driver who was working for the engineering firm that I used to work for and uh, we, we got talking and and he said, he said, man, you, you should come back. We could use you. So I said, you know what? I'm kind of running out of money, so <laughs> I'll come back. So I came back and yeah. uh, just kind of got back into the groove of, of doing what I had done before years earlier. Um, uh, but over the course of time, did some really good things as far as support and pulling together a team of people for, for support. And eventually the, uh, the company put me in a, a leadership role in, in IT, uh, and I became the CIO, CTO, and, and after after a little while, they asked me if I'd oversee their software company as well. So that's, it's a, that's a short version of a very long story. <laughs> well, Eric, I got to tell you, from almost day one of the Scene Vault Twitter feed, you have been just a huge, huge supporter. And then you actually designed the website, thescenevault.com. Tell me what your background is with Winston Cup Scene. Why has it become so important to you to help out? Because you've done all this basically pro bono. You've not charged yeah. me a cent, and I truly do appreciate that. Well, I'll tell you, Rick, um, the influence that Winston Cup Scene, Grand National Scene has had in my life, I never realized until later down the road. So I went to my first race. It was Pocono, uh, July of 1979. I was nine years old. And um, I remember sitting in the stands on, uh, we went for the entire weekend. But on Saturday, my dad came walking back up the stands and he was holding a newspaper that he had just purchased. <laughs> yeah. And he, it was a, it was a grand national scene. And he said, uh, he goes, I just, I just bought this from a guy down there. There's a guy selling this. Uh, he goes, so I, I just bought it from him. I, I don't know how much it was at the time, maybe 50 cents, something like that. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but man, as a nine-year-old, I just leaped through it, looking at the picture and go, man, I, I wish we got this. So before we left the track there in July of 1979, uh, we subscribed to Grand National Scene. So been a subscriber ever since. And that was pretty early on in the, in the scene days. It was only every other week. And then during the off season, it didn't, it didn't come at all. Um, they didn't do it you know they didn't write anything and then they would start back up so i was always excited to get it and what's interesting is we we got it forever my parents got it then when i told about when i wanted to go back to school so 
in the months leading up, just before I was ready to go back to school, I knew I was going to go back to school for sports medicine because that was something that I loved. But I, there was an article that was written in the, the Winston Cup scene early in the year that I went to school about the athletic trainers that were working in NASCAR. And I said, that's what I'm going to do someday. And I cut that article out. Um, I, I, <laughs> I beat up one of the papers, but I cut that article out and I hung it on the dorm room wall uh, at the dorm in college in, in Minnesota. I went to college wow. in Minnesota. I hung that article up and people would come in and say, what's this article? I said, well, that's a story about the athletic trainers working in NASCAR and I want to do something. That's what I want to be when I get out of school. And uh, so uh, it, I know it, it sounds far-fetched, but that was that was my goal. And uh, right after I graduated, I started connecting with Motor Racing Outreach because they had just taken over the program. And, and uh, I actually, my dream was fulfilled. Uh, and it was amazing. Well, Eric, one thing led to another, and you designed the website. You also designed the logo for the website and the podcast. And then you actually cleaned up the Grand National Scene logo for use on the Darlington Scene commemorative issue that we just did. And now we have come to the point where your company is the presenting sponsor for the Scene Vault podcast presented by QWare. <laughs> so tell me, first of all, tell me about QWare. What is QWare and how can it help the listeners do their jobs better? Well, QWare is a computerized maintenance management system. Uh, what that means is that maintenance crews use it. So if you're in a school, it would be the janitorial staff, or if, you, if you're working in any factory, it's the maintenance staff. If you're working in any office building, it's the maintenance staff. Pretty much any building, then maybe a home office, usually has some sort of maintenance staff. The idea behind QWare is to allow you, the person who is in the link, to submit a work order or to tell them something's wrong. For instance, well, the doorknob is broken on my door and, and you submit uh, a work order to the maintenance staff and they can come look at the door. Um, it also helps with scheduled maintenance, uh, what's known as preventative maintenance. So um, basically if you have a, a, an air filter that needs to be changed or belts that needs to be changed or, or something that needs to be uh, re-lubricated every so often, we in there uh, in our system a way to to get notifications when those things need to be done um, and so it's a whole system for maintenance crews so there might be a lot of people that listen to the podcast that, that don't necessarily work on a maintenance crew but I bet the building they work in have a maintenance crew so if there's anything that uh, your your listeners can do is to check with with the maintenance crew on the on the in the where they work and say hey what do you use to do preventative maintenance or to get notification when something goes wrong. Hopefully it's more than an email. What we found, Rick, and what I've told my team is that our biggest competitor is a pencil and a paper <laughs> and someone who's yeah. been there for 30 years and their knowledge base, right? And those people are becoming fewer and farther between and they're starting to retire. So we want to be as simple to use as possible. We want to make people's jobs easier um, and and we don't we don't want to build a complex solution to a problem uh, that doesn't exist. <laughs> we want to we want to create something simple that makes uh, that helps maintenance staff and janitorial staff get their job done uh, without having to learn a lot of new stuff. 
in any situation. Uh, you know, there's water on the floor, the door hinge is broken, um, and it goes to the appropriate people and notifies the appropriate people. Um, and they can assign it to someone or they can take the job themselves. We have, uh, Rick, our, we have different kinds of clients. Uh, we have a lot of school districts. We have um, a lot of uh, departments of public work. We have airports. We have museums. We have healthcare facilities. And so it's not limited to one type of business. I mean, honestly, I hope we pick pick up a race team from this. Maybe there's a race team out there that, that's got a shop and they just like to track their stuff a little better and track their assets and their inventory and, and stuff like that. And, uh, you know, we can we can help them. Again, it's very simple. It's online. It's a cloud-based solution. That's what QWare is. And in case you're wondering, Rick, my last name is Quinn, but the Q is not from my last name. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I, I am convinced that my boss asked me to uh, manage QWare because he saw my name and went, maybe Eric would be good. <laughs> <laughs> that is awesome. That is so awesome. Um, Eric, you are the chief technology officer for the CNS companies and also the general manager for QWare. I truly do appreciate your friendship over the years. I appreciate your support of the podcast and of the website. I you know, you and I have been banging that drum for a long time now, and hopefully someday we will get it done. But in the meantime, I appreciate your support of this podcast to keep us going to maybe we can cross the finish line and get that website done. That would be awesome. And I, I appreciate what you and Steve do every week putting together the podcast. And um, I'm a huge NASCAR fan. I mean, when, when I was five years old, Richard Petty was my hero. And I couldn't wait to meet him, you know. And when I did, when I was nine years old, uh, man, it was, it was, he was bigger than life. And then I went to work in NASCAR and uh, I got to work with his people and connect with him on a regular basis. And, and this whole thing to me, it's a, it's a passion for NASCAR. And coming beside the podcast, Rick, is, is not just because I love NASCAR, it's because I believe that you guys have a forum, you have a platform that is worth listening to. Uh, and I believe that really good people are out there listening and, and they want to make a difference and um, they, they are committed people. If there's one thing that I've learned from all of my time in NASCAR is that, that people that have anything to do with NASCAR, they are loyal and committed to the sport. They're committed to the sponsors. And I believe that that it held true in the 70s and the 80s and the 90s, and it's still holding true today uh, that NASCAR people are the most loyal people on the face of the earth. And so I'm being loyal by stepping alongside of that with my company, and I believe people are going to be loyal to you and, and loyal to QWare as well uh, because of the commitment that we make to each other. Eric, one last question. How can people find out more about what you have going on with QWare? If people want to get a hold of us here at QWare, Rick, the best thing to do is to go to the website. Now, we've set up a special page for people who are coming from the Scene Vault podcast. So go to qwarecmms.com forward slash scene. That is qwarecmms.com forward slash scene. And that'll take you to an information page, has uh, telephone numbers, email addresses. You can see a video about the software, but get in touch with us. We'd love to talk to you to see if QWare is a good fit for your company.
I'm Rusty Wallace, and you're listening to the Scene Vault Podcast. Okay, Steve. (laughs) Oh, boy. (laughs) This weekend at Las Vegas, Chase Elliott finished fourth. Correct. And he led twice for a total of 12 laps. Now, the Bob Ladford system, the Winston Cup point system that was in use throughout most of the 1970s on up until, I believe, 2004, by my math, Chase would have gotten 165 points. Okay. Okay. Where did Kyle Busch finish? Just come on. Let me hear it. Where did Kyle Busch finish? Well, what's his car number? 18. That's where he finished. <laughs> now, I had him finishing 19th. Come on, man. Are you already trying to manipulate this contest? Uh, yeah. <laughs> I work it. <laughs> I was born at night. But it wasn't last night there, bud. <laughs> okay, listeners, Steve Wade is now putting his glasses on <laughs> so he can see the rundown. Well, even so better. much for that fast one. <laughs> We're going to pull there. Okay, okay, 19th. Okay, he finished 19th, got in the wall early. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, he never led. So by my math, the Latford system would give him 106 points. Now, 165 points minus 106 points. Steve, I have, by my math, a 59-point lead. Well, your math stinks. (laughs) NASCAR abandoned the Bob Ladford system several years ago, like you said. And I think in this day and age, we ought to do the same thing. Let's get modern. Let's look at the point system right now. Wait a minute. Now. Okay, all right. Okay, Let's look okay. Let's at the point okay. system right. right now. All right, according to the point system now, Chase got 39 points from NASCAR for finishing in fourth place. And Kyle, for finishing 19th, got 18 points. That's where the 18 came in. All right. Now, okay. That will right. give you 39 points and me 18 points. See, right now you're 21 points ahead of me. See, I think that it just sounds better for me to say that I've got a 59-point lead. Well, of course it does. (laughs) Okay, all right. Well, here's a compromise. All right. Let's keep track of it both ways. I'll do the Lapford system. You do the current system. I think it'd be interesting to compare the two week to week. Okay. Now, we've got to hire somebody to check out our numbers every week. Like an accountant or somebody? Make sure that somebody's not pulling the wool. Oh, well, <laughs> since you've already tried to pull a fast one, I think we need to hire somebody to do an accounting of your mouth. Well, now, wait a minute. Huh? <laughs> You're going to do me. You've got to do you. <laughs> okay. All right. All right. Good. We'll do it both ways. We'll do it both ways. I'll keep track of the Latford system. You keep track of the modern system. You can double check my math if you want to. <laughs> And I'll definitely now have to keep track of your math. So, next week, Richmond International Raceway, who are you taking? I'm picking the hometown boy. He loves it up there, Denny Hamlin. You're going to pick Denny Hamlin. Right. I am going to pick Ryan Blaney. Really? Yes. Okay. Okay? So, you have Denny Hamlin. I've got Ryan Blaney. And we'll just see what happens. Now, we kind of mentioned this last week. Okay, are we going to be able to pick a driver more than once? We could make the case that we could pick drivers 
more than once as they advance through. How the about different this? You innings. can't pick the same driver in any one stage of the playoffs. How about that? I've already picked Kyle. Okay. In the second stage, I get to do it again if I want. You could pick him again. Right. Okay. Under that system. Right. Okay. Because we might go into Homestead and no one left to pick in terms of who's going to win the championship. Well, see, that's where the strategy comes in, though. That's where the strategy comes oh, in. Oh, strategy, my butt. No. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Let's follow the KISS principle. Keep it simple, stupid. Okay. I will agree to that stipulation. You can pick a driver more than once as we progress through the different stages. That's correct. All right. That sounds good to me now. Okay. All right. Now, see, that kind of changes my thinking because with me picking Chase and then with me picking Ryan Blaney, I'm not picking my big guns yet. Well. Okay. Uh, I've already said Ryan Blaney. I'm going to stick okay. with Ryan Blaney right. for Richmond. So we are going to see how that turns out. Follow us on Twitter at the Scene Vault. Check us out on Patreon, patreon.com slash the same vault podcast or paypal.me slash the same vault podcast. Thank you to Peter Salino. Thank you to Jim Beaver. Thank you to Joe Estep and Brian Kelb. Thank you to our Patreon and PayPal supporters. And Steve, thank you for being here this week after the absolute whipping oh, that you on. took at Vegas. <laughs> I'll get my turn at Richmond. <laughs> Come on, Danny.